Thanks for tuning in to Season 2 of the Oak Grove Podcast. This season, we will be taking a journey through the Gospel of Matthew as Pastor Craig goes verse by verse through all the incredible events that God has revealed to us in His Word. We hope that this series will be an incredible blessing and encouragement for you. Now, enjoy Season 2 of the Oak Grove Podcast. Welcome to the Oak Grove Podcast. The book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. If you want to know how to find Matthew, if you just turn to the New Testament in your Bible, go to the very first book, it will be Matthew's Gospel. We're going to study this together today, and this journey will take us through some highs, through some lows, through some moments of real glory, and through some moments of epic gore, but God will speak to us through His Word. And this genealogy that we're going to take a look at in just a moment, in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 1 to verse 17, trails that journey in and of itself. This genealogy doesn't read like any normal roll call. That's not Matthew's objective here. The purpose in Matthew of putting together this list of names is to demonstrate the unquestionable, the heirdom of Christ. He is the King. He has a right to be proclaimed as king. He stands in the direct royal lineage of the kings of Israel and he should be received as heaven sent king to us. Let's take a look in our Bibles at Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17. I don't mind confessing to you here this morning. A fair bit of my preparation this week has been to has been to practice. No one told me my mic wasn't on. The whole time Jeez, just love me seeing embarrass myself. I didn't even notice. Did, who didn't notice? Put your hand up. You did not notice. All right, that's about 10%. Where were the rest of you? Jeez, just the betrayal, the betrayal. Does that sound better? It should sound somewhat clearer. Uh, nonetheless, we're going to dive into God's Word. As I was saying, I don't mind admitting to you, a fair portion of my preparation this week was literally practicing these names. And I've learned, I've learned, because I listen to a lot of other people recite this genealogy. I listen to a, a lot of other exegetes and preachers through this text. I've learned that the key, that the key, this is the first point of application for you this morning. The key is to appear overtly confident. That's all it is. And it helps, it helps if you have an obscure accent that makes it sound like if you've actually messed one of the names up, it can be attributed to the fact that you live with this speech impediment called an Australian accent. So let's take a look here at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez. And Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. 
David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Amon. Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Akim, Akim begot Eliud, Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, Mathan begot Jacob, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. This is God's Word. May it be nourishment and a source of strength to us all. Now, how did I go? Was it all right? All right. All right. That's right. Lesson for the kids out there. That's what practice gets you. (laughs) Confidence. Now, let me give you a verse. This will act as our theme text for our entire study through the book of Matthew. It'll be, you don't need to turn there, although, of course, you're always welcome to, is Matthew 12, 28. These are the words of Christ. Jesus announces this. He says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the the nature of, of this gospel. That's why you can see our subheading of the exposition of this gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. That's Matthew's principal objective to communicate to all of us that the kingdom is here because the king has come. The king has come. Now, if you have a Bible, and I'm sure you've still got one nearby, let's do a little bit of background study here and just flip back to the Old Testament. Literally one book before Matthew is the book of Malachi. I'll ask you to turn with me to the book of Malachi, and we will see how the setup is for the arrival, if you will, the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Malachi chapter 3. Another fairly easy book to find because, again, it literally is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi and Matthew in your Bible, probably as you have your Bible open in front of you, are distanced apart by probably a single blank white page. Maybe the page says the New Testament. Maybe it's just a a blank white page to divide Old Testament to New Testament. But in actual human history, from Malachi to Matthew represents about four Hundred years. 400 years. It's not an insignificant time frame. It's, it's, it's common for us as, as modern day disciples of Christ to think about a, a block of time, 400 years, as being very significant in our day and age. So if we were to think back 400 years to 1620 and then think about all the goings on and all the changes in the world and advancements and developments and all those kinds of things, we would say 400 years is a long time. 
But we have the propensity, don't we? We have this propensity to think about large blocks of time like 400 years back in the times of Jesus as though it's really just a a short space of time. But indeed it is not. From Malachi to Matthew, that single white page in your Bible represents close to half a millennia. And all of that time was preparation. It was prophesied at the back end of the Old Testament that there is coming A famine. The Bible calls it not a famine of bread, but a famine of the Word of God. This was no accident by God. This was not some casual happenstance. These 400 years of silence were punishment by the Lord to the people of Israel for not sufficiently hearkening to the voice of the Lord. 400 years. A famine, not of bread, but of the Word of God. Of God. Now, just before those 400 years would arrive at Israel, where heaven would be shut up against them, there would be no revelation word from God. This was the prophetic utterance of Malachi chapter 3. The Lord spoke and said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, that, that first line in Malachi 3 verse 1 is, of course, fulfilled in the messenger who would come before Christ, John the Baptist. And then here are the words of Scripture. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There was to be 400 years of a famine of the prophetic utterance of God's Word, but yet those 400 years were build up in anticipation of what we just read in Matthew 1, the genealogical arrival of Jesus Christ the Lord. The King is coming. The Sovereign Lord is coming. Behold, He shall come suddenly to His temple. That, friends, is where we are here this morning. As we read Matthew 12, 28 by Jesus, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let me read for you, if you will, from J.C. Ryle's wonderful commentary on the gospel of Matthew. J.C. Ryle opens up with these few sentences. Let me challenge you with these. Ryle says this, the New Testament begins with the history of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. No part of the Bible is so important as this, and no part is so full and complete. Four distinct Gospels. Ryle, of course, is referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four distinct Gospels tell us the story of Christ's doing and dying. Four times we read the precious account of his works and words. How thankful we ought to be for this. To know Christ, Ryle continues, to know Christ is eternal life. To believe in Christ is to have peace with God. To follow Christ is to be a true Christian. To be with Christ will be heaven itself. We can never have or know or hear too much about the Lord Jesus Christ. Four eyewitnesses, four eyewitness testimonies written under the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Traditionally, they're called the 
evangelist because the story of Jesus is the quintessence of the gospel, the story of Christ. The story of Christ is the gospel that Paul will speak to in Romans 1.16 when he says, this gospel is the power of God under salvation. This gospel is the life-changing, soul-saving, sin-forgiving, God-granted power to save souls. Four perspectives. Three gospels are typically called the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the theologically rich John. Now, Matthew, as we know him, was a tax collector. His name was Matthew Levi, or Levi Matthew. He was a professional record keeper and an extortioner. Now, when we open up our New Testament, you're thinking, an extortioner, what are we doing reading his words for? Well, Matthew had an encounter with Christ wherein his entire life was changed. When we open up the pages of our New Testament, we encounter an Israel altogether other than the Israel we left off in the book of Malachi. And the major difference that's occurred is now Israel are subjugated under the Roman Empire. And as being such, the Romans have dished out, issued unto the Israelites heavy taxation. But of course, the Romans thought it was beneath them to go out into the villages and, and the small cities and the towns and collect this tax. That was, that was certainly below them as Roman citizens. So, so what they did was they, they, they subcontracted the tax collecting out to the Jews themselves, to the unscrupulous, to, to the ones who perhaps were not overly patriotic. And this is the way the Romans would do it. They would say to the tax collectors, you have the ability and the authority to collect as much tax as you like. And in that, you have to get for yourself a, a wage, a, a salary out of your collecting, just so long as the Roman Empire gets this amount of money. The Jewish people knew that tax collectors were always collecting more than they had legal right to collect, and they were getting wealthy off it. Matthew was one such individual. And one day, we're not going to retell Matthew's story this morning because we'll encounter that within the book of Matthew as the weeks elapse. We'll find out that Matthew, one day busy about his tax collecting and extortioning, Jesus leans in and says, Matthew, come follow me. Matthew immediately rises from his tax collecting office and follows Jesus, leaving it all behind and is granted the privilege of being an apostle of Christ. And the first to author is life, at least the first in order of our New Testament. Now, the overview of this book, we want to dive into the genealogy fairly soon. I'm not going to spend a lot of time overviewing this book, but I want to make a few remarks. The emphasis of Matthew is to present Christ as lawful king, as heaven's king, as Israel's king, as the God-sent king to deliver all of us who are under the tyranny, not of Rome, but of sin and death. The King has come. Now the other Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, strive for different emphases. But this is Matthew's clear desire. To prove, present, and prophesy Christ as the one who was called to come. The presence of the King is the presence of the kingdom. And the King has arrived. Let's look at Let's look at these begotitudes. Let's look at this 
genealogy. You know, people will say, I've heard people say, well, the genealogy portions of the Bible I find fairly dull, boring, uninspiring. Don't put your hand up. I'm sure none of you have ever said that or ever thought that. You know, I was driving into church this morning and, and it occurred to me that, that I've, had a, I've had an encounter with this personally. And I told this person who just happened to be in the car with me, I won't mention who it was, you, would, you should never pick on your spouse. Not that I'm talking about my spouse. You just should never pick on your spouse. I said to, I said to my wife, this other person in the car, I said, you'll remember when we were dating and, uh, and we decided that, that while we're dating, this is many years ago now, while we were dating, we decided we should, we should read the Bible with each other. We should actually engage in devotional, uh, devotional activities with each other so that we don't not only grow in our relationship with each other, we, we grow in our relationship to the Lord with each other. It's a good idea. If, you, if you're in the dating game right now, that's what you should be doing. You should be reading the Bible together. So my wife and I, we had our own way. Everyone does it their own way. But we would read a portion of Scripture, and then we would discuss it, and then we would sort of take turns in reading a portion of Scripture. And while I was there with this particular person, uh, I, I, I read my portion, and then we had a little dialogue. And then, and then this particular person began to read their portion. But as it happens, their portion included somewhat of a long genealogy. So I remember, I remember sitting there, and this person was reading, and got to the genealogy and began to say, uh, and uh, yada, 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 dot, 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 and just skipped it. I looked up and thought, who is this person? Can I, can I marry this person? I remember, I remember, now I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes I can have quite a temper. I know you struggle to believe that. I'm normally a very mild-mannered, patient individual. I was just shocked that someone would yada, yada, yada God's word. And so, now, we've all been in situations where genealogies have arrived. Maybe you're working through a Bible reading plan, right? And you come up in that Bible reading plan, and you open up in the morning over your cup of joe and your, and your burnt eggs, and you think to yourself, I'm going to read my Bible, and you realize it's four chapters of genealogy. You can't tell me that you don't have a moment of deflation. There are just parts of the Bible that just don't seem to yield much immediate benefit. And I want to be honest, we want to be honest, we're in church after all. Genealogies can often feel like that. Now, interestingly enough, if I can throw another thought at you here this morning, ancestry is growing in popularity. Where, where there once was a day and age where people didn't care a whole lot, it seemed, about their ancestry, that is not this day and age. Now, perhaps it's not for everybody, but a surprising number of people are making steps to investigate their ancestry. Take, for example, this is not a plug, this group is run by the Mormon church, but I'll list it, Ancestry.com. Launched in 2012, now has over 18 million people in a consumer database with their DNA. Now, I don't know, I don't know about you, and I don't want to be overly toxic here this morning in my criticism, but who on earth is putting their DNA in an envelope and sending it to a website? Like, who's, who's doing that? Why would someone do that? Nonetheless, Ancestry.com, they're, they're building your drone right now. If you've done that, you, your replica is ready to be unleashed. Launched in 2012, 18 million people 
18 million people in a DNA database and rapidly growing. In 2017, Ancestry.com listed a profit of $3 million. Yes, $3 million American dollars. And then in 2018, that had skyrocketed to over $10 million in profit. Now there are 108 million people last year who visited a genealogy website of some kind. Now there are millions that don't bother and don't care. And there are millions of others who already have their family ancestry mapped out, written down, codified in a book. But I don't know about you, that's fairly staggering to me. 108 million different individuals visited some kind of ancestry online service just last year. So what that means to me, this is at least what I conclude from that, is I'm not as convinced when people tell me they're not that interested in genealogy. I just, what I conclude is that they're just not that interested in someone else's genealogy. That's what's apparent to me. That the genealogy of Jesus and the genealogies of the Bible don't immediately jump off the page at us because we don't immediately reflect on them as part of our story. I'm, I'm also in this mix. I remember some years ago, a family member in my family did a whole genealogical study and I was as curious as anybody. Who'd have thought, right? Who'd have thought that the name Ireland, it's my last name, is French? Right? I don't know. Is people, are people making this stuff up? I don't know. But when it comes to the genealogy of Jesus, we don't immediately observe it as part of our story. Now, What's the fascination, right? What, what ultimately is the fascination? So you can find out that your weird last name, which is a country in the world, Ireland, and you're not from Ireland, but you keep getting asked, are you from Ireland? And I don't know if the Australian accent sounds Irish. And then you have to tell people it's a French name, but you're not French. I don't know. Is that, is that, what, we're trying, is that what we're trying to do with our life? What is the fascination with ancestry? Well, I've got a few reasons I want to proffer here this morning. Firstly, it helps to tell our story. People like the ability to tell their story with more content than just, I was born in 19-something. It helps us to see our connectedness. I, I think the recent, the recent popularity and surge of fascination with ancestry is, is somewhat of a reaction over and against the individualism which has reigned supreme for the last decade or two. I think there's something of a corrective there. But I think mostly when people get into ancestry and the study of genealogy, it's primarily to impart meaning to their own identity. It proves that we're more complex, that we're more diverse, that we're more interesting, that, that, that more interesting than we otherwise perhaps had believed. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe you're actually the heir of a square foot of land in the Scottish Highlands. That's all we first look for, right? Is there money to be made here? Ancestry's become a deep, a continual, a growing, multi-million dollar industry. But shouldn't Jesus' ancestry be just as interesting to us? I'm asking this, just to be clear, Sunday morning in church. I recognize if I was asking this in a, on a university campus in a lecture hall, the response I might get would be awfully negative. But to us, does Jesus' ancestry do as much for us as our own might? 
learning Jesus' ancestry. Now, the reason why I remarked before that, although on the one hand, I don't really believe we're that disinterested in ancestry, we're just mostly disinterested in other people's ancestry. When we come to the genealogy of Jesus, we're confronted with this reality. Friend, this is our story. If we are united to Christ by faith, then His story is your story. It shows the greatest story of our redemption stretching all the way back in Matthew's gospel, all the way back to Abraham. God's chosen people. We are Abraham's spiritual seed if we're in Christ. It helps to impart meaning to our identity and it shows our connectedness. So the gospel of Jesus, particularly as Matthew represents us, focuses on heaven bursting into our world. When Jesus arrives on the scene, literally nothing will ever be the same again. And when Matthew takes pains to begin to tell this story, working through these names that for us tend to be nothing more than challenges to pronunciation. When Matthew tells this story, we are reading the story of our redemption. Now Luke's genealogy takes Jesus' story all the way back to Adam. Matthew thought that was superfluous because we all come from Adam. Matthew tells it from Abraham through John into Christ. Now what's the significance of this? Maybe you're still not convinced. Maybe you're sitting there saying, this sounds to me a lot like lipstick on a pig. Right? Is that, just a, is that a phrase that we use in Australia? You know, makeup on a pig? It's still a pig. I can get up here all morning and be like, genealogies are great. They're so helpful and meaningful and impactful. And you can say, it's still just a genealogy. Well, let me tell you a story which illustrates this better than I could. There's a story of a, of a young woman who felt compelled. Maybe some of you have heard this story. She felt compelled to go and preach the gospel and seek God's grace in converting an unreached tribe of people in the deep, dark jungles of the unreached world. Very primitive people. They didn't even have a written language at all. And she arrived and her work was certainly cut out for her. You can imagine. Firstly, she had to learn the language of these tribes people. She had to learn it entirely inductive. Then she had to codify it, which means she had to invent a written language for these people. And then she had to teach them how to read their brand new written language. And then she had to commence Bible translation. Can you imagine how many years that would take? Just, just acquiring the language in the first instance would be years. And then trying to, trying to expertly mark out a, a written form of that language would take years. And then to sit down with the tribespeople and convince them to learn this language. They have no literature in their language, by the way. That's a hard sell. Learn how to read the codified version of your spoken language. That would have taken years. And then Bible translation alone would have taken years. And so I will tell you that in her first project to translate the Bible, she took just the, just the most meaty parts of the Gospel of Matthew, wrote them down, translated them, and then sent off in haste to have it printed. Well, you can imagine her deep frustration and disappointment when finally the trucks rolled in 
packed with these brand new copies of the meatiest parts of the Gospel of Matthew. Sermon on the Mount, the parables, the, the, the time in Jerusalem, and then crucifixion, and burial, resurrection, and, and ascension. And when the trucks rolled in, the tribes people were far more enamored with trucks than these brand new books. In fact, they didn't care at all. They took them out of politeness to their missionary friend who'd showed them a lot of patience, but they didn't care at all. One of the curious things this missionary woman did, and this is no criticism, was she left off the opening genealogy of Christ. And then realizing that although these tribes people have no seeming interest in the proclamation of Christ or the printing of the story of Matthew, she realized that at least for posterity, she should continue her translation work. So she went back to the drawing board, so to speak, and, and finished Matthew. From chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 8, she translated the whole book and sent off to have it translated. It came back just a few copies. And the story is when this now full version of Matthew containing the opening genealogy, when it was given to the tribal chief who initially, out of respect, took a copy and he opened it up and he read these words, such and such, begot such and such, begot such and such. His eyes widened like saucers. He says to this woman, are you telling me that this Jesus was actually a real person? She said, well, that's what I've been saying for years. The tribal chief said, I, 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 I thought you were just telling us about a, a myth, a, a story, a, a fable. I thought you were trying to just tell us to be better people and, and more moral. I didn't realize that this Jesus called the Christ was a real human being. He surrendered his life then and there to Christ. Soon to follow, the entire tribe received Christ as Lord. Upon the realization that these portions of Scripture that we call genealogies, and sometimes we read so fast, we think we probably skip most of it and move on to what we consider the more meaningful and meatier parts of the Word. They're pregnant with power and profundity. The genealogy journey. In fact, even more than that, when we begin to plumb the depths of this genealogy, some very surprising things begin to happen. Now, we should know on the one hand, Matthew is a deeply and efficiently equipped man to write a genealogy. His profession is a tax collector. He made his living keeping records, and particularly family records, how they should pay tax, how they should be kept accountable. Matthew was by nature a record keeper. Matthew has gone out of his way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to so write this genealogy that it truly floods with grace. There are some names mentioned in this genealogy that are not written anywhere else. This genealogy is important. Now we'll discuss some of the more significant reasons in a moment. But not least, because this genealogy shows how the Bible is a continuing story. We'd already said this. There's a, there's a gap of about 400 years from the Old Testament into the New. But this genealogy is showing that from the Old to the New, it's the same story. 
So many Christians are what I like to call canonically challenged. They do have an Old and New Testament in their Bible, but they wouldn't know where to find the Old if it was dependent on their life. What the genealogy shows is there is connective tissue from those narratives and stories of old, prophecies of old, literature of, of wisdom and song of old into the new. And this genealogy runs a winding story, up and down path, like, like an ancient highway connecting the furthest points of human history, God's covenant with Abraham, with the most important point of human history, the arrival of God himself in Christ. This winding road, which will elevate with kings and holy prophets and drops low to include sinners. It peaks characters like Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba. Human history often does peak Human development often does peak when women overcome abuse and oppression. These are stories that we should know. You should know the story of Tamar. She's right here in the genealogy of Christ because she deserves to be here. Although her sin was grotesque, although the nature of her life was full of oppression, God calls her to be an heir of the promise mistreated by her, her father-in-law Judah, who initially cheats her out of her inheritance. And what happens to Tamar? She marries one of Judah's sons and that son dies. And Judah says, when this other son grows up, you can marry him and continue the family name. But Judah never gives Tamar the son. Tamar was a little ungainly, a little uncomely, a little undesirous. But Tamar, and we don't justify her action, she dresses up like a prostitute one day, stands on the side of the road, and here comes good and godly Judah, I say as facetiously as I can. And Judah, who's already cheated Tamar out of her inheritance, sees her by the side of the road, does not recognize her, thinks she's just simply a, a cheap prostitute, goes in to avail himself of her services, and then later it's revealed that she is his daughter-in-law. Friend, can I just say the Bible is an R-rated book. Be afraid of that. It paints, it paints the human condition in all its vivid colors. Tamar cheated. Tamar becomes the cheater. Tamar gains the ascendancy. Tamar has sin that needs forgiving and God's grace is deep enough. It's a staggering account. Well, when I think of Rahab, you, remember, you know the story of Rahab? Every kid grows up in church learning the story of, of the conquest of Jericho. Well, right there in the wall of the city of Jericho, this little, this little hotbed, this brothel, if you will, and, and, and the main dame turning tricks is Rahab. She's got a great spot right in the wall. Conducts services for all the men in the city and all the visitors coming from outside. It's a horrid, bleak, dark tale. And here come the Israelites, God's people. And, and Rahab, although her life is sunken in the depravity of sin, has enough wisdom and wherewithal to realize that Israel are God's covenant people and they should be served and helped. She, of course, secretes the, the spies. She ends up marrying and being the father 
rather the grandmother, great-great-grandmother of King David. Could go on and tell the story of Bathsheba. Bathsheba, taken against her will, raped by King David, her husband killed. David says, well, you might as well move into the palace. She bears another son, Solomon. And this genealogy of Christ is not trying to cover up any of it. Like you might be sitting there thinking, gee, Craig's getting really explicit. What I'm doing is speaking in confrontational terms like the Bible does. These women overcome abusive, marginalized, oppressive situations. Not that I'm trying to paint them as entirely victims with Bathsheba. She certainly was. These women for sure have their own sin to be accountable for. But the sum of all this is when God becomes man, when God incarnates, it is in the lineage of sinners, saving sinners by grace. The sum of all this, not so much obvious to us, predominantly Gentiles, but in the first century to a sensitive Jewish mind as they read this would be Jesus is unquestionably the rightful heir to the covenant promises associated with the Davidic throne. As well as Jesus is the rightful legal heir to the covenant promises related to Abraham and the Abrahamic seed and land. Jesus is the new Abraham. Jesus is the new David. And although Matthew doesn't paint the picture right here in the genealogy, he will go to great lengths to show that Jesus is the new Moses. Let me, let me ask you if this sounds familiar. We've got Jesus who survives mass infanticide and tyranny. Jesus who emerges out of Egypt. Jesus who threw Waters of baptism, which Moses and the Red Sea is called baptism. Jesus who then mounts or goes up on a mount to deliver his law and teaching. The parallels are undeniable and staggering. The purpose of these early chapters of Matthew are to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of every verse and chapter and book of your Old Testament. He is the arrival of the King, the arrival of God. Grace in the gospel have come. Is the heir apparent. And so his genealogy, I, I, I want to help you rethink this. His genealogy is not a roll call. If that's what Matthew was attempting, he's done a fairly awful job. Luke's genealogy has many places where they disagree. Matthew's intention is not to give you generation after generation after generation. The Bible has got plenty of genealogies. Matthew's objective, and I need you to think about this differently, or you create a contradiction in your Bible, which is entirely unnecessary. Matthew's objective is not to give you the roll call. It's to give you the resume. That's the point. While Luke in his genealogy follows the bloodline, Matthew follows the royal line. The royal line. He is king. He is Lord. He reigns. So Matthew 1.17 will close out on this thought. 
Matthew summarizes for us in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. I want to restate this because I, I know I've said it, but I need this conclusion to settle in on your minds here this morning. Matthew has the resources to put together what would be considered a more accurate bloodline if that was his intention, but he doesn't. What is before us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 16, is an intentionally curated list to prove something. Three groups of 14. This relates to a very, a very common Jewish practice in the first century called numeric symbolism. Each 14th generation has a major history-altering event. Advent of Abraham, 14. Advent of David, 14. Captivity in Babylon, 14. Advent of God in Christ, conclusion. There's a word for this. It's called gematria. The Jews were fastidious and passionate about this study of gematria. By counting inclusively and exclusively, Matthew traces royal lineage to create three segments of 14. Because in the Hebrew language, without numbers, they used letters for numbers. And they counted the consonants in the names of heroes and prominent people. So that means the gematria, I don't want to lose you on this. This gets a little complicated, but you're going to see why this matters in a moment and what Matthew's actually doing. The gematria for the Hebrew consonants of the spelling of David was 14. D-V-D. I'm giving you the English transliteration because very few of us are Hebrew scholars this morning. That's four, six, four, fourteen. What Matthew wants to do is show you that Jesus arrives as the new, the consummate royal King David. 14 generations. Abraham to David. David to conquest of Babylon. Babylon to the advent of Christ. It comes down to three sections of 14 and written over it is the true Lord, the son of David, the Prince of Peace. David is Jesus' key ancestor. And the promise to David is what? You know it well. The promise to David is, there shall be seated on the throne forever your heir and your son. The Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said, sit on this throne until I make all your enemies a footstool. The fulfillment is clear. It's David's king has come. The Lord of even David himself is Jesus Christ. Royal lineage, ancestral, codified and secured. Christ is the Lord, the King. We see this we draw this conclusion. Matthew is concerned to prove over and over and over again. We're going to see this throughout the entire study of the book of Matthew. The lineage and demonstrate that Jesus is no pretender as the true king of Israel. And all who come to him by faith enter into his covenant of grace. 
Would you bow your head and close your eyes here this morning as we close out our study through this challenging genealogy where Matthew opens up his record with a pronunciation. The king has come. David has returned and yet one greater than David is here. One greater than Solomon is here. The king of kings, the Lord of all lords, the Messiah, the Savior. If you're here this morning, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're here this morning, you've not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to issue this good news, this decree of the King to you this morning, that salvation is free for all. Come as you are and receive the free gift of Christ's salvation. Tamar, a sinner. Rahab, a sinner. You and I, sinners. And God's grace is enough because this King, this Lord of Lords, has died upon the cross to shed His blood, to pay the penalty that all of our sins deserve. In His burial and bodily resurrection, He secures for us eternal life and freedom. With that, let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, we thank You for this grace that You've bestowed on us in the Gospel. Thank You for the Gospel of Matthew. Thank You that Matthew is Your Word to us, challenging us, enlightening us, helping us to live lives in accordance with your decree. Help us all, Lord God, never to receive the grace of God in vain, but filled with the Spirit, believing in faith that Christ is our Lord, our Savior, our King, and that this Lord has suddenly come to His temple. And He's made manifest to destroy the works of the enemy. He's made manifest to lead captivity captive and grant gifts to men. Help us, Father, to receive this Christ as He is presented and offered freely in the Gospel. Help us to be His true servants, disciples, and friends. And help us to live our lives in accordance with His precepts. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.